This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. Not one, but two important bills moved in Congress this week. One involves chips, and we're talking about the technology, not the snack. The other involves energy, health care, and a surprise about face from Senator Joe Manchin. That bill now stands a serious chance of becoming law by next month. So we'll start there unpacking exactly what's in it with our panel. Laura Barone-Lopez is the White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Hi, Laura. Hey, thanks for having me. Naftali Ben-David is White House editor for The Washington Post. Naftali, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And Cheryl Gay-Stolberg is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I do want to start on Capitol Hill, where Democrats have reached a surprise deal. On Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced an agreement on health care, energy and taxes. And this, of course, is a major about face for Senator Manchin. He's opposed this plan for months and he's often at odds with his Democratic colleagues. So what's changed? We'll start with you, Laura. Well, essentially, uh, this is a big change from December of last year when there were ongoing negotiations between President Biden, the White House, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, and other key senators like Senator Kirsten Sinema around this package. And those talks imploded in December of last year. They couldn't come to an agreement on the overall big, you know, second piece of Biden's economic agenda. And uh, after that, President Biden essentially took a step back and he decided the White House totally changed their approach. They decided they weren't going to be talking about their conversations that they were having with senators. They really weren't involved in the day to day negotiations and they left it to Senator Schumer to handle um, Majority Leader Schumer to handle these negotiations with Manchin. And even about two weeks ago, when it looked like it maybe was just going to be a small or narrower health care package on ACA subsidies and prescription drug reform. Uh, clearly, they stayed at the negotiating table and Manchin and Schumer worked it out to, of course, you know, the um, to President Biden's chagrin. So. You mentioned the Affordable Care Act just then. Naftali, can you tell us anything more about what's actually in this bill? Yeah. I mean, first of all, an agreement to let Medicare negotiate prescription drug prices is huge. That's something that presidents of both parties have tried to do, and that's a big element of this. It also extends some ACA subsidies and caps out-of-pocket costs for Medicare uh, beneficiaries for prescription drugs at $2,000. But there's also this massive climate uh, portion, and that's something that people was not were not sure was going to happen at all. That provides a huge number of subsidies both to homeowners and to manufacturers. But I think even more important, this kind of rewrites in some ways the whole story of the Biden presidency. And we should say that, you know, we're not sure it's going to pass. Manchin's a very important person. He's not the only person. But assuming that it does, you can look back at the first couple years of the Biden presidency and you have an infrastructure bill, a COVID relief bill, a gun control bill, a chips bill, and then possibly this package that includes climate and prescription drugs. That's really not bad for the first two years of a president in a 50-50 Congress and a very narrowly divided House. And President Biden uh, made a statement about the bill yesterday. I just want to play a clip of that. The bill will lower health care costs for millions of Americans. <clears throat> it will be, and uh, it will be the most important investment, not hyperbole, the most important investment we've ever made in our energy security and developing cost savings uh, and job-creating clean energy solutions for the future. It's a big deal. Also, for the first time in a long time, began to restore fairness to the tax code, began to restore fairness by making the largest corporate nations and the largest corporations in America 
pay their fair share without any, without any new taxes on people making under $400,000 a year. And, and Cheryl, we just heard this appears likely to pass, but how is it likely to stand up against GOP opposition? Well, it's going to have to pass, if it does pass, with uh, Kamala Harris's vote. Um, as Naftali said, we have a 50-50 Senate. Joe Manchin has really had an outsized influence in this Senate. He and Kirsten Sinema, the Democratic senator from Arizona, have uh, managed over the year to really hold up a lot of President Biden's agenda. So Joe Manchin is key. Um, his reversal came about as a result of these secret talks with Chuck Schumer. The two of them were um, at odds with one another. They were a little resentful of one another. Manchin was upset that fellow Democrats were dumping on him. Schumer was upset that Manchin was, you know, torpedoing Biden's uh, legislative agenda and possibly his presidency. Um, and so this is, in the end, this will pass very narrowly to get to your first question. And um it seems almost certain that the vice president will have to come to the Senate, assume her role as the presiding officer of the Senate, and cast the deciding vote. Laura, I heard you chuckling over there. Does does this agreement, um, you know, with with Senator Manchin, does that foretell anything about Biden's agenda in the future and his ability to get other things through, or is this just about this bill? Uh, I, I mean, as Cheryl said. The things that have gotten through this year have only been because uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema have decided to go along. Um, Senator Cinema was key to the gun control bill that Naftali mentioned. Um, but, uh, you know, moving forward, the likelihood of President Biden being able to pass much more substantial legislation beyond this is really slim simply because, you know, there's only a few months left in the legislative calendar. There's the November election. If it if if any of those two chambers flip, uh, then President Biden is likely not to get much more of his agenda through. I mean, also, a couple of yeah. things had to happen to make this possible. First of all, it's funny in a way that they renamed this bill. It's now not mm -hmm. Build Back Better. It's now <laughs> the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Much and more exciting, right? <laughs> Naftali well, took well, the words out of my mouth. Yeah, I mean, it plays right into what Manchin wanted to do. And in fact, in his initial statement about it, he said, Build Back Better is dead. That, that's, that's a verbatim quote because he had to make the case that he had helped destroy the Democrats' big sweeping social agenda. Mm -hmm. Now, Biden, when he was talking about the bill, said the opposite. He said, well, a lot of things in here are going to remind you of Build Back Better. So his narrative is that this is his initial bill just scaled down. Manchin's narrative is that he destroyed Biden's bill and replaced it with something a lot better. So both sides are going to try politically to get what they want out of it. Did you have more to add to that, uh, No, I was just saying that this was a kind of a little dig at Joe Biden. Build Back Better is dead. You know, he couldn't he, – he didn't say, well, we've come up with something that is maybe builds on Build Back Better or it's um, – you know, it, it does more work than Build Back Better. No, he killed it in his language. And um, that's – couldn't have made Joe Biden happy. We've alluded a couple times to the chip bill. I want to talk in more detail about that. It's designed to transform the chip manufacturing industry. It's now on its way to President Biden's desk. Can you tell us, Neftali, maybe more about what that does specifically? Yeah, this is a bill that addresses the semiconductor industry. Semiconductors are in virtually 
all the technology that we have right now. And the fact is the U.S. has fallen behind, and some of the most sophisticated ones are not made in the U.S. anymore. They're made in Taiwan. But perhaps more important, China has had a huge investment in semiconductors. And it's interesting. This is a, this is a reversal for some Republicans in the sense that they tend to oppose uh, you know, what you could call industrial policy, for lack of a better word, investing a lot of money in an industry that you think is good for the country. But I think it's the Chinese threat that is making all this possible. Um, also, you know, uh, in an indication of kind of the maneuverings that happened in Washington, uh, a lot of House Republicans that supported this uh, were now going to oppose it because they were mad about the climate and drugs bill. Uh, so this is something that does have an unusual amount of bipartisan support, but it hasn't been easy. And just remind us quickly, why is this so important? I mean, this is this has been a direct cause of some of the supply chain problems we've seen, correct? Yeah, I mean, again, it's been, it, you know, semiconductors are in almost every single thing that we do and almost all the technology that we have. And this is a bunch of subsidies to companies to build more semiconductor factories, improve the ones they have, expand the ones they have. So it's an absolutely vital part of our economy as well as our national security. And I think that's why it got so much support. Also this week, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia had this to say about the future direction of the GOP. We need to be the party of nationalism, and I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. That, again, was Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene talking with the conservative media outlet Next News Network. Now, this isn't exactly new, but it, it does seem to be a theme we're hearing more and more of, and this was perhaps the most forceful endorsement of Christian nationalism I've heard from a Republican. Uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado has said similar things. A close ally of Republican Senator Doug Mastriano of Pennsylvania has as well, although Mastriano has tried to distance himself from that individual. Cheryl, I'll go to you. What what do you make of this trend in the Republican Party? Well, I think this is another indicator of how the Republican Party is really moving to include a right-wing extremist fringe. I think we need to look at what Christian nationalism is. It's a belief that the United States was founded as a Christian nation mm -hmm. and that we need to safeguard that foundation um, and, and restore it. Um, you mentioned that other politicians have been invoking Christian nationalism. Uh, an ally of Doug Mastriano, who is the Republican candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, said recently that, I will read this to you, my policy, he said, is not to conduct interviews with reporters who aren't Christian or with outlets who aren't Christian. And Doug, meaning Doug Mastriano, has a very similar media strategy where he does not do in interviews with these people. These people are dishonest. They're liars, etc. Um that's not the all-inclusive nation that our founders envisioned. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. And Laura, I want to start with you, and I want to go back briefly to what we were talking about just a moment ago, which is this sort of rising, more open endorsement of Christian nationalism within the Re Republican Party. 
what are you hearing and, and what do you think it signals? Well, I mean, one key example of this, of this uh, pattern continuing, is the fact that at the Conservative Political Action uh, Network conference that happens next week, Hungary Prime Minister Viktor Orban is going to be speaking there. And he very much espouses white Christianity. Uh, he actually recently gave a speech where he said that races should not be mixing. Uh, and CPAC is still moving forward with us with this speech with him. They're welcoming him. And, you know, it, the irony here is also that Orban has shut down, like, I think nearly 300 ter- churches in Hungary because they are led by non-loyalists. But he very much, um, you know, has even been in reaction to his recent speech, his an advisor of his actually resigned, calling it pure Nazi text. So uh, that's just another data point in this growing, you know, list of examples of where the Republican Party is headed, not just in terms of white Christianity nationalism, but also, you know, espousing violent and racist rhetoric. I think the question I have about this, and it's kind of a new iteration of an old question, and maybe Neftali or Cheryl, you would want to weigh in, but it's, you know, as the Republican Party, at least segments of it, lean into more and more extreme rhetoric, will that drive people away or does that become the new mainstream GOP? I think that's a big question. And, you know, we asked the same question when Donald Trump was running for office. Would he drive people away or would Trumpism become the mainstream GOP? And I think that we have the answer to that now, that, you know, MAGA and Donald Trump have overtaken the party. Um, Trump has taken a big tent philosophy toward people who espouse things like white supremacy and Christian nationalism. So um, it would stand to reason that if he, who really controls the GOP right now, embraces this element of the party, then it will move further and further into mainstream GOP thought. We are already seeing QAnon, for instance, conspiracy theorists incorporated into the mainstream GOP. There are QAnon adherents running for Congress. So, um, there are insurrectionists running for yes, Congress. Yes, that's right. Running for, or running for other um, So I, I guess if history, if the past is any predictor of the future, then one would think that this, you know, this will become part of mainstream GOP life. I want to talk about the Democrats a little bit more. Um, this week, the Washington Post reported that Representative Adam Schiff of California is mulling a bid for top House Democrat. Nancy Pelosi, of course, has led the House Democrats for two decades now. Why might Schiff see an opening at this time? Well, Nancy Pelosi has uh, signaled that she may step down from her leadership position after this election. It's actually not 100 percent clear or certain, but she's certainly given that indication. And there's a lot of people that expect it. Now, the person who's been seen as the heir apparent is a guy named Hakeem Jeffries. He's a congressman from New York. Um, He is an African-American. He's 51 years old. So it would represent both a diversity change and also a generational change. And Adam Schiff doesn't really represent those things. I mean, he's 62, which is young compared to the current leadership, but it's (laughs) old compared to the would-be leadership. Um, uh, And he's white and he's from California. So in many ways, he uh, represents a continuation. Now, he's widely admired within the the party. I mean, he's he's, uh, experienced and articulate and a good fundraiser. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is widely respected too. Uh, And I think this is just part of a broader battle within the Democratic Party. We just talked about what the Republican Party has become. I think the Democratic Party is still trying to figure out what it's going to be in the era of Trump and post-Trump. And this is a manifestation of it, along with what we're going to see as a battle over the presidential nomination as well. But it's a surprise to a lot of people that Adam Schiff would step up at a time when uh, Hakeem Jeffries was seen as the next guy in line. And Democrats are taking a lot of flack from their base right now for, you know, 
perceived ineffectiveness, inability to resist things like the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, Laura, what what could a change a change in you know a major position within the party mean for Democrats more broadly? Uh, I you know to Naftali's point. Um, the, the generational change, I think, is something that a lot of Democratic voters are looking for, particularly at the top. I mean, when you look across not just the House speaker, but also Senate leadership and the presidency, uh, a number of younger voters you know, that I speak to say that they want to see younger people in prime positions of leadership. And uh, they feel as though, you know, the party is not necessarily the base of the party. The younger base of the party feels as though party leaders are not necessarily moving with as much urgency as they would like to see them uh, on key issues, whether it's climate change. Although if this if this bill ultimately passes, maybe it'll actually improve uh, President Biden's numbers with Gen Zers and with millennials, because those have uh, his polling numbers with those groups, those key base voters um, who helped him win in 2020 have continued to go down over the last year. And I quickly want to read a listener comment from uh, Santa Barbara, California. A listener says, Joe Manchin forced changes that push more fossil fuel development in exchange for support for renewable energy. He did not do a 180. The Department of Justice is investigating former President Donald Trump as part of its criminal probe into the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. That's according to a new report in The Washington Post. And here's U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is the most wide-ranging investigation and, and, and the most important investigation that the Justice Department has ever entered into. And we have done so because this, this effort to uh, upend a legitimate election, uh, transferring power from one administration to another, cuts at the fundamental uh, of American democracy. We have to get this right. That, again, was Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking on Wednesday. I think this is a long-anticipated move by many. Naftali, what is the significance of this happening now? Well, I think a couple things are happening now. For one thing, the Justice Department does appear to be ramping up its investigation of January 6th, by which I mean not the actual attack, which they've been on for a long time, but the plot to do things like send fake electors and that sort of thing. But the second thing that's happening is the Justice Department wants you to know it's doing that. In other words, they've been stung, I think, to quite a serious degree by the January 6th committee, which week after week comes up with amazing witnesses, with incredible nuggets, with snippets of video, and the Justice Department appears to be doing nothing. Now, that doesn't mean they really are doing nothing. The nature of a criminal investigation is that it's confidential. But it's really ramped up the pressure on them to show that they are taking this very seriously. And I think that that's why you see Merrick Garland out there speaking. It's why you've seen a growing number of of leaks uh, about what the Justice Department is doing. And there's just a very interesting dynamic between those two bodies. And Cheryl, the the House January 6th committee has heard some damning testimony in recent weeks about Trump's involvement in the insurrection. There's also, of course, the criminal investigation underway in Georgia and now this new investigation by the Department of Justice. What could all this mean for Donald Trump? Well, I think it's really impossible to um, overestimate how extraordinary all of this is. You know, there's never been a time in our country where a sitting or a former president, rather, has been charged with a crime. Um, in previous cases, uh, with Nixon and Clinton, who were both investigated, prosecutors either decided to forego prosecution or successive administrations have con- have pardoned, as, as Ford did with Nixon. So now we have the prospect of a former president being indicted in a criminal conspiracy to overturn American democracy. And 
this really unleashes all kinds of, of, of fraught possibilities for the country and threatens to, frankly, further divide the country. I thought it was very interesting that when Merrick Garland was asked about this, he said that the worry that it would further divide the country would not discourage him from from prosecuting Trump. And we know that Merrick Garland is a very, very careful prosecutor. He is someone who is uh, cautious in, in demeanor and also in nature. He is going to proceed very methodically. He has said they cannot afford a single misstep. He does not want in his investigation to give any uh, leeway or opening to allies of Trump to say that they um, have made a mistake or have stepped out of turn. So he is going to proceed very, very carefully. And as Naftali said, quietly, um, because the nature of a criminal investigation is that it's secret. But it is extraordinary if it heads where it appears to be heading. Laura? And on Garland's caution, uh, President Biden himself is also being extremely cautious. There's a reason that, you know, he chose Garland and also uh, he has decided to the disappointment of some Democrats to not talk as frequently about January 6th or about um, the current committee's uh, ongoing investigation and even the hearings and the stunning revelations that have come out. President Biden has been very quiet about those other than just this week when when he did make a comment at a police conference saying that uh, if you can't be, quote, you know, pro cop and pro insurrection. Uh, so he clearly was uh going on the attack there against, uh, you know, the Republicans who have sought to essentially create revisionist history about January 6th. But other than that, the only time that Biden has actually uh, talked about the insurrection as well as the ongoing impacts of it and the potential for future attempts to try to overturn other election results is in January earlier this year when he marked it with a speech on the anniversary of the insurrection and as well as when he was talking about voting rights in Atlanta, Georgia. Going back briefly to these investigations, Naftali, what is the timeline or what can be said about the timeline for when we might know if there will be charges against former President Trump? Well, unfortunately, I don't think we can um, even make an educated guess. I mean, the whole nature of these things is that they file charges or don't file charges when they're ready. But there is one interesting timing element of it all, which is President Trump, former President Trump, in a speech this week, specifically blamed the investigation on the fact that he's considering running for president again, which we kind of knew he was going to do, but it was still interesting to hear him say it. And his defense is going to be, they're just investigating me because they want to prevent me from being president. And I think in some ways it's going to push him to run for president. Maybe he was going to anyway, but it's just going to add to his incentive so we can then cite that as a reason for this whole investigation. So there's going to be this interplay between when and if he announces and when and if the Justice Department announces charges. What, what could that mean, Laura, for a potential Trump campaign 2024? The potential for charges as he's as he's running. Right. I, I mean, no, well, look, I think that to Neftali's point, it's not just the Justice Department, right, that could potentially press charges. It's also the Fulton County DA in Georgia. And if anything, they could very well maybe move before the Justice Department. So um, I think that him potentially running is also, you know, factoring in to how quickly um you know, someone like the Fulton County DA is moving, uh, you know, she's indicated that that she wants to wrap this up on in a timely manner simply because of the fact that uh, that the campaign is around the corner. And we even saw after the January 6 hearings uh, this this uh, and the the, you know, 
the ridiculous revelations that came out of them about the president's involvement, his pressure on the Justice Department, his pressure on elected officials across the country, um, that it seemed to get into former President Trump's head. And we saw all of the reports where he said that he was starting to consider announcing earlier than previously thought. Well, on a related note, the New York Times this week published dozens of emails from Trump's inner circle in the days leading up to January 6th. And those give us an inside look at the plot to use fake pro-Trump electors to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Cheryl, what exactly was going on there? So my colleagues Maggie Haberman and Luke Broadwater had access to um, emails that were authenticated by people who were involved in the Trump campaign that showed just the level of of how much they knew that this was a scheme, a plot, that it was phony. Um, In some of these emails, one lawyer even used the word fake to recall uh, or to talk talk about these electors. Uh, He wrote that we would just be sending, quote unquote, fake electoral votes to Pence so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes. And then he followed up and said, well, maybe fake wasn't such a great word. We should call them alternative electors. And he also said that's kind of wild and kind of creative. So it reminiscent of alternative facts. Right, exactly. But, you know, This just proves the point, and it proves what we already have seen come out of this investigation, which is that people in Trump's circle knew that this was illegal. His own White House counsel knew that this scheme to send, quote-unquote, alternative, fake, whatever you want to call them, electors to Congress was against the law, and they were going to do it anyway. So it's a core piece of evidence uh, in this investigation into this plot that was masterminded by Uh, Trump's lawyers and uh, presumably with the knowledge of Trump himself. I mean, is that the newest piece of information that we saw in these emails? We've known for a long time, right, that Trump and his team were trying to overturn the 2020 election. I I think it's the boldest admission yet that they knew that these were fake electors. I mean, the actual use of the word fake, I think, is is very stunning. And you really can't get around that language, especially with the follow-up email, well, we shouldn't call them fake, we should call them alternative. It's, it's, it's very black and white. And what are we learning about the sort of balance of Trump's involvement himself versus his advisors? Well, well, from the committee, we've learned a lot, which is that uh, they broke it down into different pressure campaigns across the government and across, you know, states. So, Trump's uh, former President Trump's pressure on Justice Department officials where he had key meetings uh, from December into early January, right before the January 6th uh, insurrection, where he was potentially trying to install his own loyalist at the top of the Justice Department and replace the the acting uh, DOJ head. He he appeared on board with that idea, and that was well documented in the committee hearings and in the testimony that we heard, uh, as well as his attempts to try to, along with Rudy Giuliani and others, pressure um, state elected officials to bring forward these fake alternate electors. So they've shown time and time again across different elements uh, the effort by President Trump, along with his inner circle, to to overturn the election result. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A.
You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. This week, the Federal Reserve boosted interest rates for a fourth time this year. The Fed raised rates by another three-quarters of a percentage point in an effort to curb inflation. So first of all, what does this rate hike mean for the average American? Naftali. Well, it just means that borrowing money and paying for a lot of things is going to be more expensive. The Fed is in this desperate effort to uh, slow down inflation, which has just been very persistent and very high. It's a very weird economy that we're in right now, the likes of which a lot of people have not seen before. We have enormous job growth, very low unemployment, but also persistent inflation. And everybody from the Fed on down is trying to figure out exactly what to do and how to, how to manage it. At the same time, you're seeing the administration trying to argue desperately that we are not in a recession, uh, whereas Republicans are saying we are in a recession. And on the one level, you know, what does it matter? I mean, what matters is how people are doing. But it does matter from a psychological and political perspective, I think. And I'm sure the Republicans are going to be calling it the Biden recession. And the White House is going to be trying to persuade people that things aren't that bad, but also try to appear to be sensitive to their concerns. So it's really kind of a a mess um, from everything from the policy level to the political one. Laura, I see you nodding. Obviously, the Biden administration (laughs) wants the economy to be as good as it can Mm -hmm. be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, already, uh, I was... uh, laughing because, yes, uh, to Neftali's point, already yesterday when it was the second quarter of negative GDP growth that was announced, um, uh, Republicans were tweeting out in succession, Biden's recession, this is the Biden recession, Biden's recession. Uh, And the White House has kind of been caught in this semantics uh, game with them, which is that we saw in the lead up to this report this week um, that the White House was trying to get ahead of it and say over and over again that even if there is two quarters of negative GDP growth, that alone alone is not a marker of a recession, that there have to be a lot of other factors uh, that are taken into account, like uh, higher unemployment, you know, like a decrease in manufacturing. And so yesterday when President Biden came out uh, to talk about uh, the economy and to talk about this potential Inflation Reduction Act uh, that he may get from Joe Manchin and Senator Schumer. Uh, He said that uh, manufacturing is up, investments are up across the U.S., job, uh, you know, uh, unemployment is down. And so he tried to really just hammer those points home to the American public to try to say, We're, that doesn't sound like a recession to me. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, of course, said that she thinks that the, the administration just needs to be focusing on explaining the economy right now to the people rather than getting into this back and forth on is it or is not a recession. I I mean, whatever the White House <clears throat> decides to call it or however they want to describe it, I think the impact on a lot of, um, you know, working Americans is is what it is. I mean, I was I was in Louisiana in the days after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade doing reporting on abortion as a clinic there. The, you know, one of just a few clinics in the state was about to shut down. And, and you know, my Uber drivers, Lyft drivers seemed unaware of that, but, but we're talking about the economy. They were talking about inflation. And and this is, uh, you know, in line with what I hear from my other NPR colleagues who are out talking to voters. Cheryl, what does this mean, this rate hike for the average American? Well, I think as Naftali mentioned, it means that it's going to be harder to borrow money. It'll be harder to, let's say, buy a home if you want to buy a home. The If you want to sell a home, the, that pandemic boom is already cooling off. But I think more important, it's what people experience at the grocery store, right? Like if you go to the grocery store and bread is $6 a loaf, 
or eggs are, you know, $4 a dozen. That, that is what most Americans are feeling and experiencing. And that is going to be the barometer by which they judge whether or not Biden is doing a good job, whether things are easing. We are seeing um, gas prices ease a little bit. And I think that's, that's good news. And I, I noted that um, Elizabeth Warren, who's a standard bearer, you know, on the left, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week in which she warned that the upshot of this um, interest rate hike was going to be to hurt working Americans because it was going to make it harder for businesses to borrow money. Businesses were going to then in turn wind up laying off people. The people they were going to lay off were going to be the, the lowest paid individuals, often people of color, and that this was really going to trickle down to uh, the poorest and, and most vulnerable Americans. And I think that has to be a fear for Joe Biden as he goes into um, these midterm elections and then if he does indeed run again, as he has said he would, and, uh, a presidential campaign. And that fear is why a, a lot of, um, you know, Democratic pollsters will say that they think that it's time to focus on, you know, the social and ideological issues for Democrats, which is the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, you know, gun safety with the number of mass shootings that have happened this year. They think that Focusing on those issues and what Democrats have done to try to shield abortion rights or, you know, passing the gun control bill could potentially motivate their base far more than uh, than talking about the economy. Cheryl, I got to quickly say six bucks is a lot for bread. I don't know. I don't know where you shop. But, um, uh, it, but it is. But I have seen. OK, <laughs> I don't buy it because it's too expensive. But I have seen Dave's killer bread. <laughs> For $6. And I was like, wow, like that. I'm not spending $6 on a loaf of bread. And if you were spending two, now you're spending three or four right. in many cl- pa- cases. So the, the point stands. Naftali, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to note, I guess, maybe that there is a psychological element to it. I mean, when gas prices were going up, it was a huge deal. Gas prices have now gone down for like a month, Mm -hmm. and it just seems to make no dent on people's psychological feeling about the economy. And so while there's all these contradictory factors happening, People's feeling is definitely one of anxiety and concern, and that's not going to be good for Biden and the Democrats. I do want to hear uh, from Federal Chair, Fed Chair Jerome Powell after the decision this week was announced. You know, he was insisting that the economy is not in a recession. I do not think the U.S. is currently in a recession. And the reason is there are just too many areas of the economy that are, that are performing, you know, too well. And, and, of course, I would point to the labor market in, in particular, uh, as I mentioned, it's true that growth is slowing, and for reasons that we understand, really the growth was extraordinarily high last year, 5.5%. We would have expected growth to slow. There's also more slowing going on now. But if you look at the labor market, you've got growth, I think, payroll jobs averaging 450000 per month. That's a remarkably strong level. But Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren is skeptical. Warren tweeted, quote, the Fed's aggressive interest rate hikes risk pushing the U.S. economy into recession and the evidence is in the data. While failing to address many drivers of inflation, the Fed is pumping the brakes on the labor market and slowing the economy. Congress needs to step up, end quote. You know, Laura, is this I'm curious about the challenge for Democrats as we head into the midterms uh, between, you know, acknowledging what's going on with the economy while also perhaps not wanting to amplify the sense that there's a recession. Uh, 
how did they thread that needle? Well, it is a balancing act. I mean, we have seen the White House, whether it's President Biden or as well as his top advisors, you know, make the rounds this week trying to say that they understand that this is a very difficult moment for for the American public right now, that they understand the pain that they're feeling. And so the pivot that Biden is now making is to say, but look at this bill that I may very well be able to pass with the help of Senate Democrats. So the, within that bill, again, I know Naftali touched on it earlier, but the prescription drug cost reform, which is allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, the president is trying to point to that to say, I'm helping people's pocketbooks because uh, the, those uh, drugs will become more affordable, um, as well as, uh, you know, the health care subsidies. So it's those elements. Um, it, and in addition to trying to really push that he's listening on climate change, that they're doing things to compete more with China, the chips bill that we've talked about. Those are the things that Democrats are going to try to be focusing on, particularly in their vulnerable districts, to show that while, while these bills may not necessarily drive down inflation at a speedy rate, that, that there are things that they are doing to try to make things better. I quickly want to talk about China for just a moment. A report from Republican Senator Rob Portman claims that China has been targeting the central bank by recruiting Federal Reserve economists as a network of informants. The report found more than a dozen Fed economists have close ties to Chinese government institutions. What else is in that report? Neftali? I mean, it does paint a picture of China trying to gain influence in the Fed. And I mean... How could they not be in a way? I mean, the Chinese are trying to gain influence and, and intelligence of virtually every major American institution, certainly including all the financial ones. Chairman Powell pushed back pretty hard against this report, which listed uh, – it did mention that the Chinese that it said – or I'm sorry, the people in the Fed that it said had ties to this Chinese talent recruiter, uh, an advisor who tried to download a file without authorization, a guy who was uh, detained uh, by the Chinese, you know, three years ago. I mean, it didn't actually paint the portrait of this widespread, you know, infiltration riddle. Fed and, and Chairman uh, Powell tried to push back pretty hard against that. But I think one thing that might make this report resonant is it brings together two of the kind of bigger fears that Americans have, the fear of China and the fear, fear of a troubled economy. And you bring those two things together and say the Chinese are into one of the temples of American capitalism and the American economic system, and it's going to uh, catch people's attention. Um, but I didn't see the report as some sort of huge reason to kind of panic or, or draw dramatic conclusions. Moving into this week's health stories, President Joe Biden is no longer positive for COVID-19 and has ended his isolation at the White House. He spoke at the Rose Garden on Wednesday. I've uh, just tested negative for COVID-19 after isolating for five days. Thankfully, I'll now be able to return to work in person, but I, I want to thank you all for your well wishes, your prayers. Uh, the entire time I was in isolation, I was able to work, to carry out the duties of the office and uh, without any interruption. It's a, it's a real statement on where we are in the fight against COVID-19. Yeah, and he compared his bout with COVID to what happened when his predecessor tested positive. Laura, what do both do diagnoses demonstrate about our, our changing understanding of COVID-19? Well, that was, I think, why President Biden was highlighting uh, former President Trump's you know, need to go to the hospital versus his ability to work in the White House, which was that uh, there are vaccines now. Uh, 
uh, and there are boosters now, and Biden has both been fully vaccinated and boosted, and that there are treatments now like Paxlovid, which the president took, that um, that make it so the the virus is more manageable when you're an older individual um, or you have an underlying health condition. But, you know, what was interesting was that he really focused on in that speech that, um, you know, he tried to convey to the American public that you don't have to live in fear anymore about the virus, that if you just followed these steps that were trying that the that the administration that the government is trying to provide, which is getting boosted, getting treated, um, you know, following the guidelines. Now, of course, there is, uh, you know, another what appears to be another resurgence of COVID-19 right now because of the variants. And um, we're seeing questions about whether more mass mandates could go into place or not. But um, the president was trying to, again, convince people uh, to get vaccinated and to take the necessary precautions. And and then the virus may not be as um, as harmful to their health. An OBGYN from Indiana is getting a lot of national attention. Dr. Caitlin Bernard performed an abortion on a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio last month. That story erupted into the national media circuit after President Biden referenced it in a speech. I spoke with Bernard this week, as did you, Cheryl, um, about the threats and harassment she's faced over the past few weeks. I think what's been lost in the political discourse about abortion is that abortion is health care, that, again, there are so many situations that people may face for which abortion care is necessary, is life-saving, and I think it's important for people to understand the real-life impacts of the laws and this political discourse. Dr. Bernard says Indiana's attorney general is now investigating her. Cheryl, I wonder what your takeaways were from from your conversation with her this week. And and what do you see as the significance of this case? So I wanted to write about Dr. Bernard because I see her as someone who is really uh, on the front lines of, of something that the medical community has been fearing, which is a new war against doctors, a legal and political war against doctors. Um, doctors who provide abortion have long been targeted. Some have even been killed. Dr. Bernard is a respected OBGYN who provides abortions as a very small portion, a small percentage of her practice. And now she is herself getting threats. As you said, she's under investigation. And so I I wanted to hear from her. And I think my takeaway from her is that she has felt that activism and outspokenness is an essential part of her profession. And she's been criticized. Todd Rokita, the Indiana AG, called her an abortion activist acting as a doctor. But What she said to me and what others in her position have said to me is that their activism, their advocacy flows out of their need to be able to care for patients in the way that is that they see fit, that is that is the most medically proper. And, um, you know, this was this was a horrifying case of a 10 year old who was raped and became pregnant. But it is not an isolated case. And what she said is that politicians are trying to impose a one-size-fits-all um, law governing abortion, and abortion is health care. I think the thing she told me that stuck with me the most is that every reproductive health care provider can remember the youngest patient that they took care of, whether that was an abortion or a delivery. Unfortunately, it does happen. I've been talking with Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you. Thank you. Naftali Ben-David, White House editor for The Washington Post. 
Thank you so much. Great to be here. And Laura Barone-Lopez, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. So is the United States about to trade one of the world's most prolific arms dealers in order to get U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner back home? Russia says there's no deal yet. Sherelle Griner, Brittany's wife, hopes there will be soon. To be very honest with you, um, I don't really listen to much of the, the talk about the how in measures of, you know, what is necessary to get her home. But if that's what's necessary, then yes, do it. And there's other news from Russia for us to get to. Also, how well or otherwise was the Pope's tour to Canada received? And President Biden and Chinese President Xi talked this week for almost two and a half hours. What did they get into? Joining us this week, Nancy Youssef. She's a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Jennifer Williams is a deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. And from London, we'll have Anne McAlvoy. She's executive editor at The Economist and host of the podcast, The Economist Asks. We're going to start with this big announcement from the State Department. We put a substantial proposal on the table weeks ago to facilitate their release. Our governments have communicated repeatedly and directly on that proposal. And I'll use the conversation to follow up personally and, I hope, move us toward a resolution. The Biden administration has offered to exchange a convicted Russian arms trafficker, Victor Boot, who's serving time here in the U.S., for the release of two Americans, Brittany Greiner and Paul Whelan. CNN was the first to report on the offer. And Nancy, I'll start with you. What do we know about Victor Boot and whether this deal is going to happen here? Well, this came about, as you mentioned, by um, by way of CNN that said that um, that this there was an offer put forth that in exchange for both Brittany Griner and for Paul Whelan, another American being held in Russia, that the U.S. would release Victor Boot, who was convicted in 2011 um, um, for selling weapons. Um, he was caught uh, in Thailand by DEA agents posing as members of the FARC. Um, he's so notorious that he had as the nickname Merchant of Death and was played by Nicolas Cage in the 2005 movie Lord of War. I think the challenge is, um, first of all, the, the State Department has only said that they put forth a substantial proposal, and we should note that they said they put that proposal forward weeks ago. Moreover, the Russians have said that they're not going to do anything on these cases until there's a conviction, and the case against Ms. Greiner's proceeding, her next hearing, is on August 2nd. We heard from the foreign minister today in Russia that they're starting the process of um, getting calls set up. And that's all to say, while we're hearing talks of a proposal, it seems that the process is moving quite slowly. I, I hope to be wrong about that. But the fact that this potential proposal put forth weeks ago, that the process still has to play out, and there, there doesn't seem to be any urgency on the Russian side to resolve this case, says that while we're starting to hear um, a framework of, that could lead to the release of Ms. Greiner, uh, Mr. Whalen, 
um, there's nothing to indicate that this is imminent. And so um, I think we should think of this as the early steps of a potential process to get to get Americans released. Okay. And Jen, why are we hearing about this now? I mean, why was this information made public at this stage of what seems like a pretty sensitive process? Right. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure uh, I, I, at CNN who their sources were, of course. Um, so, you know, uh, in terms of how they got the story, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, it does seem like potentially, I would guess, the fact that, as Nancy said, the U.S. did seem to have make, made this offer several weeks ago. And it seems as if the Russians are not particularly enthused or, you know, interested in moving all that quickly. Um, you know, uh, the the Russian side even said, we'll look at the proposal when we have some time, uh, which, you know, doesn't seem like they're particularly um, interested in moving very quickly. So it's certainly possible that this was, you know, leaked to um, put some pressure on the Russians to, you know, move a little bit more quickly. But as Nancy said, you know, the Russians have been pretty clear, and U.S. officials acknowledge this, that no deal will go forward until there is a, a conclusion to the Brittany Griner case. Now, she has pleaded guilty, but said that she did it accidentally, right? She's um, accused of having uh, smuggled in hashish uh, hash oil, um, which she says was an accident. So she has pleaded guilty, but the trial is ongoing, so it probably won't be at all until that is concluded. But I think it's important to note, too, though, this isn't the first time this has, this has happened, right? Back in April, Russia agreed to release former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed in a prisoner swap with the U.S., and the U.S. Uh, agreed to free Konstantin Yaroshenko. Um, so, you know, this we do have a framework for what this looks like. This is not the first time we have seen prisoner swaps. I think what's raising a lot of eyebrows is who it is that the U.S. is offering, which is Victor Boot. And as we said, very notorious arms trafficker. Yeah, some of the sensitivities involved with any prisoner exchange were addressed by John Kirby. He's the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications. And he talked about some of this with reporters on Wednesday. There's a balance to be achieved with each and every arrangement. Um, the balance of getting folks home, but also making sure that our own national security is preserved. And the clearly that we're not encouraging hostage taking in the future. But the goal has got to be to, to try to find a way to get them home. And that's his focus. I believe we have Anne McElvoy from The Economist on the line with us now. I'm going to bring you in, Anne. You know, most governments will say they don't negotiate with hostage takers. And yet... This happens. What's driving the current effort by the State Department to get this done? I think this is just one of those subjects that is in the way in a very complex, multi-sided and dangerous situation with the war in Ukraine, the perception that it may be getting bogged down and whichever side you're looking at it from, Russia is bogged down in its way, but that Ukraine also needs to show that it's progressing towards victory in the State Department. Uh, and others in the U.S. and allies spend quite a lot of time figuring out what the priorities should be here and how far to go on the military front, etc. But when you've also got this diplomatic complexifier, when you've got something like a prisoner exchange in the wings, well, if you're optimistic, you could say if they pull this off, and I covered a lot of these at the end of the Cold War in East Berlin, it looks at least like the channels are open, and that would be a good thing to keep those channels open because it reduces the risk of some escalation getting out of control. 
with Moscow. If you take, perhaps as I do, a more sceptical view, it's probably just another thing that's going to be treated as a distraction by the Kremlin and by Vladimir Putin, because they'd much rather talk about the value of individual prisoners than they would about the dreadful human rights abuses and the loss of, of, of life in Ukraine. European leaders convened this week to discuss the continent's energy crisis. The EU agreed to ration its natural gas this winter to prevent a severe shortage. Here's Germany's economic minister, Robert Harbeck. I think it's an important, very important next step. It shows that Europe stays united uh, to Putin and to Russia. Uh, You won't split us. So this is the important signal of the day. And I want to go back to you. There's some concern that splits in Europe have already started to appear over this. What are the chances that the European Union will rally behind a country like Germany, a nation that still depends on Russia to keep the gas tap on? There isn't much chance that Europe will rally behind Germany because a lot of Europe is either very cross with Germany for having got into this position. And there's a bit of good old German word schadenfreude here. Southern Europe very much lectured by Germany about how to look look after their finances. If you take the Greek crisis, Italy and Spain probably come into this basket. You're saying, well, hang on, it wasn't us that got so heavily over-dependent on Russian gas. And now you're telling us that we should reduce how much gas we use by 15%, which is the proposal. Germany certainly needs something of that order in order to keep the economy moving along. And recession is, of course, threatening all of our economies. At the same time, you have a lot of others saying, well, why should we do this? The boot's on the other foot now. You told us off for being fiscally irresponsible. You've been massively irresponsible in terms of energy politics. Under Angela Merkel, we should point out, who otherwise, I think, got uh, pretty good political obituaries. So, yes, I think there is quite a divide in Europe on this. And the only thing that should maybe override it is that if you get too much into a big, bad-tempered argument about this, well, you really are giving a goal there to Vladimir Putin over Ukraine, because in the end, that is what is at stake geopolitically here. Nancy, as this war continues, as it drags on, does it does it become more difficult to get everybody on board to, to keep doing these difficult things? I, I think that's a very likely scenario. I think, as Anne so um, eloquently described, you're already starting to see tensions. And remember, this is all in anticipation of more natural gas needs in the winter um, as temperatures drop. And, and so how do you sustain unity when the consequences of um, these decisions could be, in the case of Germany and others, um, recession, inflation, real economic um, impacts that, sh- that could shape those countries domestically. And so it's, it's not just how long the war goes on, but the pressure that Russia is putting on these states by sort of launching um, what, what Zelensky described, sort of a war of resources, um, either through food or through natural gas, that the implications of this pressure is real domestic pressure across Europe. Next to Ukraine, where Russian missiles struck the Kiev region for the first time in several weeks on Thursday. At the same time, Ukrainian forces continued their counteroffensive to retake the southern region of Kherson. The BBC's Paul Adams explained why this particular port city is so important. It is a place where the Ukrainians feel that they can begin to roll back Russian advances. Because of the way Kherson is located on the north side of the Dnipro River, 
connected to other parts of Russian-controlled territory by these key bridges. The Ukrainians feel that by destroying those bridges or damaging them beyond operation, they can isolate those Russian troops on that side of the river and ultimately retake the city. And about a week ago, the head of UK intelligence said Russia was struggling to maintain its military campaign in Ukraine. How does that tie into the attacks we've seen this week close to Kherson? It ties in, I think, in the sense that what Richard Moore, the head of MI6, was pointing out was that Russia is having to devote an awful lot of manpower and weaponry and and losing a lot of both just to keep advancing at all. And he made the, the point in his statement that Russia is really only advancing a few miles at a time. Now, if you're watching the news and you're seeing bombardments of the port of Odessa or you've seen that situation there around Kherson, you might be thinking, well, is he kind of talking up the successes of Ukraine a bit? I don't think he is. I think what he's pointing out is that, yes, Russia can make advances. It can have victories as it sees it. But in order to do so, it really is kind of busting through its own military strategy here because it is taking a very long time. And the entire basis on which Vladimir Putin started this war and effectively told the Russian people that we were going to march in, get rid of the in quotes, close quotes, neo-Nazis, and effectively get President Zelensky out of office and encircle Kiev. Well, we're nowhere near to that happening. Let's hope it doesn't happen. But I think what he's really saying is don't be worried if you're seeing things get bogged down. Some things will go wrong on the ground. Keep, you know, keep our faith. The Allies have been very strong, the Western Allies and other supporters outside the West, who have I think, seeing that this is the military game that has to be allowed to play out. And yes, people get bored with it. I'm also just interested, we're starting to talk about the war dragging on. Well, really, this is a very, very important, mainly land war, that's been going on for less than six months. And it may be that our modern attention spans are rather shorter than they were for conflict. And he might also be pointing a message that we have to stick with it. And also, Anne, I mean, what do we know about military casualties on both sides? Well, we, we do know a fair amount in terms of the Ukrainians are probably a bit a bit more open about it, its casualty figures because, of course, it is being aggressed against. So it does want to say, you see various figures that will be thrown up week to week, depending on where the fighting has been, that make clear that you know, this is ruthless and, and brutal loss of life and civilian life, which is where they tend to focus their communications Um, I want to move on to Jennifer for a second. Um, I want to talk about these HIMARS rocket systems donated by the U.S. What kind of a difference are they making on the ground? They seem to be making a a huge difference, right? So HIMARS, it's the high-mobility artillery rocket systems. These are long-range, high-precision rocket launchers. They can hit targets uh, 50 miles away. They're very, very precise, far more precise than anything else Ukraine was using before now. Ukraine had been saying repeatedly that it needed these uh, longer-range weapons to fight effectively. Now it finally has them. The U.S. sent 12 of them. Um, And so we are seeing it's actually making a difference. Uh, Ukraine's defense minister said on Monday that his forces have used the rocket systems to destroy more than 50 Russian ammunition depots since receiving them last month. Um, We're also seeing reports from commanders on the ground suggesting they've played a a big part in stalling Russia's advance in the Donbass. So like we were talking about seeing 
Russia, you know, slowing down, not being able to move as quickly. Um, the Pentagon is expecting to deliver more of them. So it basically just gives the Ukrainian forces the ability to fire rockets faster, with more precision, a lot farther. Um, they're nimble, they're harder to spot, which makes them harder for Russia to destroy. Um, I think the, the longer-term issue here, though, is that Russia... Um, will likely start to try to figure out how to adapt to these and you know, potentially change where it is putting um, especially commanders closer to the field in, within rocket range. So I think you know, right now we are seeing Ukraine kind of take the initiative here with these more capable weapons. Um, over the long term, whether they're able to keep up the momentum, that's a kind of a, a bigger question. This war is very much turning into a kind of grinding war of attrition. It is incredibly expensive in terms of equipment and uh, casualties, manpower. We're seeing both sides quickly depleting their um, you know, their equipment supplies and trying to, to resupply over and over again. So um, I think right now we're definitely seeing these changing the kind of uh, facts on the ground. How long that will last, I think, remains to be seen. And Nancy, Russian missiles also struck Odessa again on Saturday, a day after officials signed a new deal meant to resume grain exports from the Black Sea port, which, of course, is affecting much of the region. Do we know if some grain is making it out of the country? Well, what we've seen is those strikes and then another set of strikes on Tuesday. And as you know, one day after this deal that I think many thought was a promising step towards getting Ukrainian grain and other supplies out of the country. Remember that roughly 40 countries depend on Russia and Ukraine for more than 30 percent of their wheat imports. So it has real world impact. Um, President Zelensky was in a port in the Odessa region today signaling that Ukraine is ready to move forward with this deal. And so I, the anticipation is in the next few days, we could start to see ships moving out. But there are a lot of uncertainties. Uh, among them, will Russia stick to the deal when we've seen two strikes um, uh, in a matter of days after this seemingly um, monumental deal? I think that creates uncertainty. Um, shipping companies may be reluctant to get involved while there's um, a fighting happening. There are damaged ports in Ukraine. There are mines that have been laid by the Ukrainians to thwart um, naval attacks. And it's not clear yet um, who's clearing those mines, how effectively they've done so. So while there's optimism that we, that the process of getting grain out of Ukraine can start, I think there are a lot of challenges before that. Um, and you saw President Zelensky today demonstrably try to address those by going to a port to a ship that is holding grain, a Turkish one that's been sitting there since before the invasion, and say, we are ready and then the unspoken is as long as if Russia is willing to abide by the terms. Right. And just to give you a sense of the local geography, it is less than an hour's drive from Odessa to Moldova to the west. And on Sunday, Moldova's prime minister told CNN that she is very worried about Russia invading her country next, potentially. Here's what Natalia Gavrilitsa told Farid Zakaria. This is a very difficult position, not just for Moldova, but for any small country, any country that relies on the rules-based international order. If a country can start an annexation war, then in this sense, nobody is safe. Uh, and I think that a lot of countries are worried. And I want to come back to you. Has uh, Moldova has been part of the Soviet Union and Romania. How vulnerable mm. is it when you see the gains being made by Russia in the south and east of Ukraine? It's certainly vulnerable. We don't know if in terms of 
what may be a very changeable grand strategy from Moscow's point of view, it's worth the risk of widening out conflict to other smaller countries. It might decide not to get involved, for instance, in the Baltic states, which was also a reasonable fear that was raised at the beginning of this conflict, but instead put more pressure on those countries. My own view is that Russia is much more likely to find other ways. Moldova is economically very vulnerable indeed. It is not highly developed. It's been sort of stuck a bit on the periphery of development between East and West since 1990. There are other ways that you can squeeze those countries. And I think we'll see that also in the Balkans, whereas it happens, I was also a correspondent during the fall of Yugoslavia. And you can see it already there with the pressure on Serbia and on those more stressed and vulnerable parts of that region, like Bosnia-Herzegovina, you don't always need to go the military route. That said, you know, I, you could have me back uh, on this show in a while, and I may be saying, well, it turned out that Vladimir Putin has, is very keen on the military route these days. That's the approach he took in Ukraine. I'm not sure myself that he'll go further. Moving on briefly to another piece of international news. French President Emmanuel Macron has been in Cameroon this week. That's where he called out the entire continent for, quote, hypocrisy. Macron said that Europe had identified Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a war. But at a news conference on Tuesday, the French leader said that many in Africa had not. Now, those remarks contrasted with those from another visitor to the continent, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Russia's top diplomat praised African leaders this week for taking, quote, an independent path. Lavrov insists that Moscow is not the aggressor in Ukraine, nor the cause of the resulting food crisis we've been talking about so much, which, of course, has hit the continent very hard. We've been talking with Anne McElvoy from The Economist, Nancy Youssef from The Wall Street Journal, and Jennifer Williams at Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White today. You're listening to 1A. President Biden spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping for more than two hours by phone on Thursday. She warned President Biden against, quote, playing with fire over its diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, may be leaving for Taiwan as early as this evening, according to reports from NPR. Jen, how has the White House responded to the threat from the Chinese president? Well, the, the Biden administration is trying to kind of downplay it a little bit. Um, that you know, Xi Jinping has used this language before, the similar language about playing with fire. Um, the Biden administration is very much trying to kind of tamp down the tensions. This phone call was essentially intended to try to do that, right? They were on the phone for quite a long time. Um, they've spoken many times. They haven't yet met face-to-face. -face. Uh, Xi Jinping has basically refused to leave China since the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so they're trying to maybe figure out a way on this call to start making preparations to have a face-to-face -face meeting. Um, but, you know, the Biden administration very much, according to their, the White House readout, their side of the call, Basically, we're trying to say, look, we reassured China that our, our stance on Taiwan has not changed. We still, you know, adhere to the one China policy, et cetera. Um, China very much trying to kind of make it clear that you better adhere to the one China policy. Um, it, you know, they didn't explicitly address uh, in the, the readouts the Nancy Pelosi Pelosi's potential trip to Taiwan. That is very obviously what was probably part of the conversation, uh, even if not directly, um, but, you know, obliquely addressed. It is a very big issue for China. They do not like to see senior U.S. officials 
going to Taiwan. It, you know, they see it as a, a sign of uh, support for Taiwanese independence, which they absolutely oppose. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi is, you know, the third in line to the presidency. She's a very high-ranking U.S. official. So this would very much be, uh, you know, seen on China's end as provocative. Now, you can also say that China has also been very provocative toward Taiwan in in recent months. Um, you know, these kind of pr provocative flights nearby, et cetera. So I think we're trying to see through this conversation, both sides really kind of staking out their red lines, trying to make it clear where they stand, trying to keep the lines of communication open so that things don't escalate into a situation that neither side can back down from. Um, you know, I don't think we saw any particular progress on the substantive issues in terms of trade, things like that, climate change. Um, but we did see at least both sides making their positions clear. And uh, as NPR is reporting, we do know that Speaker Pelosi is traveling to Asia. What's not confirmed is whether she will visit Taiwan. But, Nancy, the Pentagon announced it is developing a security plan if she does. Why does Pelosi appear to be out of step with the administration on this issue? Well, I think that there are some fears that if the speaker were to not take this trip, that, that the U.S. is somehow um, kowtowing to um, pressure from China, that it's letting China dictate her travel. And I think also that there's um, uh, a drive by some um, on the Hill and by perhaps Speaker Pelosi herself to signal support to Taiwan. She would not be the first speaker to visit uh, Taiwan. Newt Gingrich did so in the late 1990s. And, and and I think part of what you're seeing is a White House that is not, and a Pentagon for that matter, not looking for increased tensions or the risk of miscalculation, um, and, a, and a China saying that we're not going to continue to allow um, higher and higher U.S. officials come to visit. And so um, that's sort of the, the crossroads that we're at. I should note as well um, that this comes at a time when um, President Xi is seeking a norm-breaking third term as a communist president political leader, party leader, excuse me, at a political gathering later this fall. And I think from um, his perspective, he's thinking about domestic politics and is trying to signal um, that China will not be um, um, bullied, if you will, by the U.S. in terms of um, allowing them to continue to um, assert um, their position uh, towards Taiwan, albeit obliquely with these kinds of visits. And so it's all of those tensions that are at play. I think it's everyone trying to sort of say what, how they want to assert themselves and who can and cannot sort of set the parameters mm -hmm. for, for, for relations. Yeah. And I want to ask Anne about this, too. How would you describe the relationship between the, really the world's two largest economies right now? That economic tension is bubbling away there in the background, and it has never really come anywhere to being resolved. But we have actually seen the Democrats in some ways move closer, though they would never put it like this, but to the position that Donald Trump was taking. Republicans were saying, this is not sustainable. We cannot go on with trade relations with China to the detriment of, of America. Uh, and also, I think this is a very live discussion here at the moment here in Britain, actually, in the race to lead the Conservative Party and succeed Boris Johnson. I just wanted to chip in a bit on this point of Nancy Pelosi's visit. Uh, on The Economist asks this week, I have Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary of State, who is, as you know, very steely. She has a very direct delivery and she makes it abundantly clear without uh, overstepping her mm -hmm. diplomatic bailiwick, that she doesn't approve of it. And she, she keeps uh, talking about Nancy Pelosi as she, and she's got a perfect right to go if she wants to. Right. But I think it's very clear that the administration is not aligned with this visit particularly well. 
and will have to at some point make the best of it because of course what they don't really want is any sense of division there that could be played against them from Beijing. Yep. We have a question from a listener named Nancy. She's asking about uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to uh, to Asia. Um, I want to put that question to you, Nancy. The question from our listener is, is why does why can Pelosi justify what she calls a joyride to Asia using tax dollars? But what is the what is the purpose of the trip? Well, I think it's her um, call, and and I think she's trying to signal that she is a speaker of the House. Um, that the, the House, um, among the things that they decide, is funding for the Pentagon, for the State Department, um, for and ha- and has a key part in sort of um, how the U.S. conducts its foreign affairs and diplomacy, and so. I, I think what she's trying to signal, and I, I haven't spoken to her, of course, and I, I can't speak for her office, is that um, she is an independent actor from the White House. I think one of the things we've heard from the Pentagon is concerns that that um, Beijing sees her as sort of subordinate to the White House because of her role or her place in the line of succession. And so what you're hearing, or at least seeing from her, should she take this trip, is her saying that she... Um, believes that she should be allowed to travel, that she should be allowed to engage with Taiwan on terms that she is setting, not that the White House is setting, not that the administration is setting, and not that China is setting. Let's move on to this week's breaking public health news, beginning with the global monkeypox outbreak. Last Saturday, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global health emergency, calling it a, quote, public health emergency of international concern. Andy Seal, a health advisor for the WHO, says people should be wary about what they might be reading about the disease. There's a lot of misinformation about monkeypox, much of it fueled by homophobia and racism. We have to challenge this. We must work more closely with the communities affected, inspired by their leadership, their advocacy around access to testing, to vaccines and to services in general, fighting stigma and getting this response um, right come hand in hand. And it's through partnership with communities that that's the way to go. And there have been more than 20,000 cases of monkeypox reported in 78 countries with more than 4,000 cases in the U.S. What can you tell us about how rapidly monkeypox is spreading? I, th- I think the difficulty with, with monkeypox is partly that uh, it does spread very rapidly. Uh, and as that, that report is, uh, or that, that little clip has just told us, it often, it's it set, it, travels in certain groups, but it doesn't travel very evenly. And I think this is one of the things that the reasons that it's uh, caught, if you like, the uh, international health community a bit unawares. It certainly was there and they had strategies for dealing with it and for sort of tamping it down. We mustn't forget also, of course, that the backwash of COVID is far from over. It's still around large parts of the United States. It's mitigated, certainly uh, in the UK and Europe at the moment, a lot by the vaccine rollout, but that has taken up a lot of attention. And it's also taken up a lot of bandwidth in terms of public health messages, what people are focused on, and human beings being what they are, often focused on one thing or one perceived threat at a time. So I don't think this is in any sense in danger of being overwhelming, but it certainly absolutely needs focus, both in terms of the clinical response, the public health messaging, and it needs people also you know, sometimes to adjust their own behaviours accordingly. And putting that message out when you could say there's a bit of cognitive overload uh, about health and other things going on, is, I think, where the problem is laying with this one. 
And Anne, I know that you're in high demand today, and we have to say goodbye to you right now. So uh, thank you so much for your time. That's Anne. That's Anne McElvoy, executive editor of The Economist and host of The Economist Asks podcast. Thanks again. Going back to the, this issue of monkeypox, uh, what is the significance, uh, Nancy, of the, the WHO declaring this a public health emergency? What does that mean? Well, I think one of the things that they're trying to do is um, – open up um, and unlock a coordinated response, including providing vaccines. There are some areas that have a surplus and aren't distributing them, and of course there are some places that need it more. And then the more simple uh, explanation is to really raise public awareness before um, people are caught off guard by the sort of pace and um, ability, how quickly this is able to spread. And so... um, And it has led, I I don't know if there's a correlation, but we're starting to see communities across the world, including the United States, really respond. We saw in San Francisco, for example, um, they've declared a local health emergency there um, where they've had roughly 300 cases. And so um, I I think when the World Health Organization declares something, a public health emergency of international concern, first and foremost, it's raising um, concern. And by doing so, it potentially um, um, can and lead to a coordinated response across um, the world such um, that it mitigates the impact of monkeypox um, um, on, 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 on populations um, worldwide. Which leads to the question of, you know, what is the U.S. going to do? And Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra said this week that White House officials are still deciding whether to declare a monkeypox public health emergency here in the United States. Jennifer, do you think that will change? I think it's certainly possible down the line. Um, I don't think uh, we should expect it, you know, in the in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, interestingly enough, the you know the WHO, this kind of um, council essentially that kind of weighs in on whether or not to make this um, declaration. They were actually dis- um, divided on whether or not to make this. Um, you know, to move it to this highest level of alert that the WHO can issue, that public health emergency of international concern. There were, you know, a lot of, um, I guess, concerns about how it could potentially be stigmatized, in, you know, in particular because it does seem to be spreading primarily, but certainly not exclusively, um, you know, between men who have sex with men. Um, so there were concerns kind of at the international level. I think, you know, there is also, I think, some concern about pandemic fatigue, essentially, and, you know, what it could mean when, you know, making these kind of big declarations. Is it another, like, you know, will people actually see this as, oh, this is something we need to prepare for, or will people just kind of brush it off and say, look, you know, we don't <laughs> we don't have time for this, we can't think about this, we're already, you know, maxed out with uh, two years of, of COVID. I think it is important that the federal government does, you know, have clear messaging on this. There has been some kind of confusion, particularly around the messaging, um, you know, coming out who is most at risk for this right now, but also making it clear that it, it is not just men who have sex with men that can get this, and yet they are at a higher risk right now. Um, I think it would also, you know, help unlock, if they were to make a, a federal declaration, could help unlock more resources 
in particular for vaccines. I think that will be the kind of bigger question. We are seeing some struggles that local you know, communities are having difficulties getting the number of vaccines they need. There does seem to be um, you know, a kind of outpouring of people who do want the vaccine. I think because of, of COVID and two years of COVID, uh, a lot of people do understand the importance of vaccines in a way that maybe we didn't uh, before COVID. So um, I think you know, potentially we could see that in the coming weeks if this continues. I think we are starting to see some stabilization globally of the virus outbreak spread. So I think we'll have to kind of just watch and see what the federal government decides. Moving back to COVID for just a moment, this week new research was published pinpointing the origins of COVID-19. Two studies published in the journal Science show that a seafood and wildlife market in Wuhan, China, was the epicenter of the virus, with two variants being introduced into humans in late November of 2019. Nancy, what more can you tell us about those findings? So I have to tell you, I thought it was a fascinating study. Let me um, back up and say that, remember, um, despite um, how much we think about COVID, there's never been a definitive conclusion about its origins. And as you'll recall, there was some discussion about whether it emerged in a lab or um, a transmission from animals to humans. One reason that we don't have a lot of clarity is because China was... um, wasn't willing to open up um, um, its its facilities, its research, um, its people to questions um, at the early stages of this. And so it's a lot of research that's kind of working its way backwards um, two, from two years ago, in this case, um, two and a half years ago. And so uh, on Tuesday, the journal Science um, publishes two studies. And what's interesting is that they come to the same conclusion by two very different routes. One study maps out um, the origins of of COVID, looks at the earliest cases, and it finds that um, there were, and it can map it right down to what, where in this market, the Western part of the market, where it thinks um, the transmission started. And it starts to show through mapping the spread through through Wuhan in those early mo- uh, days in November 2019. The second study does a molecular approach, and it looks to figure out through um, molecular study the early lineage, if you will, of COVID-19. And what's fascinating is that it found that there were two lineages within days of each other. That is, there were two instances within days out of that market of a transmission from animal to human. And they both find that the, that the, the COVID-19 originated in this market. And it's, it's the most conclusive study we have found since the outbreak of COVID-19. You'll remember that nearly a year ago, U.S. spy agencies and intelligence um, um, agencies came together and said that they couldn't make any conclusive finding. And so um, while this doesn't rule out that it could have also emerged from a, a lab, um, it, it, it does offer a pathway to, to explain its origins from this market. The Pope has been in Canada this week. His Holiness was there to apologize. He said, quote, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. The Pope has been apologizing for the part played by the Catholic Church in Canada's abusive indigenous residential schools policy. More than 150,000 children were forced to attend these schools until the late 1970s. The Catholic Church operated 66 of the country's 139 residential schools. Now, this is a rare overseas trip for the Pope. Jen, why did he choose to make the journey to Canada now? Well, so... 
you know, it, basically there was this big report in Canada this um, that came out as part of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission about the Indigenous schools and the role that the church played. They issued these, uh, you know, over 90 kind of uh, demands, requests, things that wanted to happen. And one of them was to have the Pope apologize for the Catholic Church and, and the, the role that it played in running these residential schools. Um, and so we actually saw, right, earlier this year, the Pope did apologize to a delegation of Canadian Indigenous leaders at the Vatican. However, because the report actually said the apology should be delivered by the Pope in Canada... A lot of people, in particular indigenous communities in Canada, were not basically happy with the apology being done at the Vatican. So he decided to issue a second apology on Canadian soil for the Catholic Church's role. However, it's not being particularly received uh, in the way that I think he probably would have hoped it had. Um, as you said, the, the wording of the apology was very specific. He said, you know, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians. He did not say by the Catholic Church. So he was apologizing basically only for the actions of individuals, and some individuals in particular, not the Catholic Church as an institution as a whole. And so there's a lot of kind of, um, you know, discussion that that was not quite as far as, as a lot of communities wanted him to go. Um, he also didn't address several other things, including, you know, the issue of reparations, um, disclosing records that the Catholic Church has that could potentially help locate the final resting places of many of these indigenous children. Um, and then there was a big kind of protest that we saw during his trip as well, um, relating to this, this thing called the Doctrine of Discovery. Basically, uh, it's a 15th century papal edict that denied sovereignty to non-Christians. It basically kind of underpinned the, the you know, colonialist uh, dehumanization of indigenous people. Um, and a lot of communities in Canada wanted the, the Pope to kind of rescind this doctrine, and he did not. So I think while this is, you know, many are seeing this as a good step that the Pope did, he did come to Canada like they asked to make this apology, still not going quite far enough. And I think more specifically, I think a lot of indigenous communities are saying, you know, the apology was great, we need concrete action. So this is a good step, but it's not enough. And, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. We will see if you actually take these additional actions to show that you are actually, you know, providing reparations, providing kind of, you know, the actual concrete steps needed mm -hmm. to atone for this. And, and quickly before we go, Nancy, we've just got a minute or so or even less, but some members of the First Nations in Manitoba said they were angry that the Pope was given a headdress as a gift after his apology on Monday. He was then pictured wearing the headdress. Not good? That's right. Well, remember that a headdress is historically a sign of a symbol of respect. And um, after he gave this apology, an indigenous um, member of the community put, put this headdress on him. The Pope was clearly moved that um, that this um, this was put on him, and and he kissed the man's hand. And for all the reasons that Jen so beautifully outlined, I don't think it was um, um, universally received because there's a lot of hurt around what happened. And I think everybody um, came to it with their own expectations of what the Pope would do. And when that wasn't met by so many, the idea of him then wearing something that was such a demonstrative um, display of respect by Indigenous people, I think, um, evoked a very strong reaction across Canada. Mm-hmm. 
Nancy Youssef is a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Jennifer Williams is deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of The Negotiators. Earlier, we were joined by Anne McElvoy of The Economist from London. Thank you all so much. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon. This is 1A.